ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Competition is Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Hard to Paint with David Grubb. And joining me today for the first time, and we should have done this much sooner, but we're doing it now. And I couldn't think of a more appropriate time to welcome him for the first time. From 1037 The Game, uh, RP3 and Company, and the Louis Prejean podcast, and everything else, ladies and gentlemen, he is Louis Prejean. Louis, welcome. Hello, we should have collabed a while ago. You're absolutely right, but it feels good and it feels right. So thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Like, I still remember the first time we uh, really worked together as you came to a Pelicans game and um, kind of showed you around a little bit. But, you know, I, I am really proud of what you're doing and what you have done in, in your career so far. You just graduated from ULL and um, you get ready to head out west, man. So... First, congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, a lot of people don't know where we might be going, uh, Paige and I, because I just put out uh, a tweet saying that we're moving this summer and we are going out west. It's something that we've always wanted to do. Uh, so Paige is attending. Uh, I, I'm sure she doesn't want like a lot of people to know, but you I don't really have to say where. <laughs> yeah, I really, I really don't care where. Uh, you know, I'm just so proud of she's going to do what she wants to do. Let's just say, uh, so, um, we're, we're moving out West and it's going to be great. Um, you know, and it all feels like it's been part of the plan. Uh, it's rare that it, it kind of works out that way, you know, uh, along a journey, uh, things don't go according to plan, but as long as the destination is there, uh, it, it feels amazing, uh, to be honest. And I'm so lucky that I've met you along the way. And I was talking about this because I did my last Saturday show unprompted, um, this past Saturday. And I was like, you know, everyone just feels like they're part of the journey. And there's so many moments that I hold so close to me. And the night that we, you know, were covering the game together and you so graciously uh showed me around the smoothie king center like you absolutely didn't have to this like young 20 something year old like didn't know what to do uh those are just like little moments and uh relationships that i hold so close to me along the way uh of finally doing what we're, we want to do so uh yeah i mean thank you so much and the journey to going out west it feels amazing and i'm glad we're finally able to do it you got to do this the right way. I didn't really get to do it the right way coming into the industry. You, you knew early on that this is what you wanted to do. You've been involved in it for years now, and you, you've distinguished yourself as a, as a young journalist slash host and production person in this region. How did you know that this is what you wanted to do? I knew I always wanted to creatively write when I was in third grade. I always go back to third grade when I knew I wanted to write. I tried to write a novel. It was a, weirdly about Pangea. 
I don't know exactly what the story was, but it was about Pangea or something. So uh, I knew I wanted to creatively write when I was in third grade. And then it was the year 2009. I always go back to the year 2009 as the year I was really getting into sports. And I was gravitating towards the game of basketball. I always played, you know, rec league sports, soccer, basketball, uh, baseball even. Uh, And then my love of sports really grew in 2009. So I was trying to like latch onto any team and it was basketball was like always the first love of mine. So it was the 2009 NBA finals. Uh, It was the Orlando magic and Los Angeles Lakers. And I always in my head, you know, it was four one, the Lakers won, but it was the Orlando magic that made me fall in love with the game of basketball to a point of like a professional level of like, I don't know what it was. Courtney Lee, as a rookie breaking his nose, he had the clear face mask in the finals. You know, it was just spread him out with Dwight Howard. Uh, like I remember Jameer Nelson. And when he joined the Pelicans, I was like, Hey, Jameer Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you didn't get 2009 Jameer Nelson though, when he got, <laughs> he got to the Pelicans. <laughs> so it was 2009. And, and even though the magic, you know, got a little gentleman sweep there it was so fun to watch them play basketball and then it was my first year uh loving a new orleans team was i think the year before anthony davis really um and i was like all in on gravis vasquez i was like a point guard uh so 2009 was also the year uh i was like trying to latch onto any team it was the new york jets so people ask me all the time it's like you know, you're from Lafayette. You've always lived in Lafayette. Why the New York Jets? And I really can't come up with a good answer other than 2009. I was trying to latch on to any team that, right. that I could on a professional level. And it was the New York Jets. So, you know, and then I mixed it ultimately of creatively thinking about the world and creatively thinking about what interests me. And then I found sports to be an interest. And I was like, I want to combine them both. I don't know how. So uh, high school graduation uh i took two years after high school to really figure it out and i was lucky enough to do so because not everyone was lucky enough to just uh, allow themselves to have a break from that transition of high school to college you know there's there's a pressure to do that and you know um i was lucky enough that my family supported me to just take a break uh and they were like you know they never really put any pressure on me to get good grades in uh high school all throughout elementary school middle school it was ultimately the pressure was that I put on myself was coming from me. Like mm-hmm. I, I was, I was always hard on myself. Uh, so, you know, I, I always view it as luck and fortunate because it's just like uh, not everyone had that, that support system that I had. So I took two years out of high school and I was like hungry to just write and hungry to cover sports. So I worked for some online websites uh, covering the NBA. I, I worked for the site where it was just lists. You know, it, like those cheap lists that yes. you write, like top yes. 15, three-point shooters of all time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just constantly so doing I, I really, yeah, churn and burn stuff. Yeah, so I did those. And then I uh, I knew I wanted to do, like, journalism. I was like, I want to be in the field. Like, I want to I want to cover games. I want to interview coaches. I want to interview players. I emailed every newspaper in the state of Louisiana when I was working at Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, oh, in, oh, wait a minute. I, I forgot that you are a Chuck E. Cheese alumni, too, because I worked at <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese for three and a half years um, from high school into my college years. Yes. So that, again, see, this is why we get along. We understand. Right. 
what it is to to work in that environment. And anybody who hasn't done it, from the ball crawl, cleaning out the ball crawl, to you know, kids who are overheated running around a birthday party. I know. <laughs> man, Chuck E. Cheese, man. I, I appreciate that job so much because I mean, my managers always worked with me because they knew I wanted to like really pursue like sports journalism and it required nights off it required some weekends to go out to games and mm-hmm. i would express myself so much like hey if, if if it's possible can i go to this game like and they were like yes of course i was like thank you so much uh so they always worked with my work schedule so i was always grateful for that uh so you know i was i was uh doing man, what was it called coin drop i i don't know if you've ever done it uh or if it like makes sense to anybody but coin drop before they moved to like digital cards there at Chuck E. Cheese was you had to manually go through every game, pull out each co- tokens from the, from the game yep. and then put it in a bag and they yep. counted in the back. So we did coin drop and it was one morning I was doing coin drop and it was after like I emailed every newspaper and one person got back to me and it was Kevin foot. So thank you to Kevin foot. And funny enough, I was able to produce his show at 1037 The Game, like when when the station brought him on. It was so funny. It was like a full circle moment. Uh, and, and I remember that. I was like, so Foot was the only one that got back to me uh, as like a stringer there for the daily advertiser. Just he was like, you know, come to my office. You know, mm-hmm. I would love to, you know, just work and see what we could do and figure it out. So he was the only one to give me like that start there in print journalism. Uh, and then after I freelanced for about six months, I always knew I wanted to go to college, you know, whether, you know, no matter how long it took to finally figure out how to register, uh, shout out to my aunt, uh, Crystal for helping me. I, she reminded me when we had our little, uh, graduation get together the other day, she reminded me that she helped me in the kitchen at her house to register because I didn't know how to. So I, I thank you to my aunt Crystal. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, and then we went to co- and then I went to college and I knew that I could have taken the community college route and that probably would have been the route that was most affordable to me because I needed financial aid all throughout college uh, and that would have been the most would have made the most sense financially but for me I was so hungry to start that you know uh, the community college here didn't have a journalism program and they didn't have a, a local uh, like a student paper that I right. could work at so I was like. I'm going to UL right off the bat because I don't want to adjust to a new school after doing two years. And I want to start at the Verm. Shout out to the Vermillion. They're the student newspaper at UL. And I want to start there right away. So I worked there my first semester right off the bat uh, as a sports reporter. And then that summer I was named the sports editor and I was the sports editor for about two years. And along the way, it led me to one through seven the game. That was very long witted. I'm sorry, but no. that's, I think it's important because there are people who listen to the show and want to know how to get into the industry. And there are a number of paths that it takes, but all of them, and you and I both know this, all of them start with jobs that are a lot of work and you, it's, it, it's determined by what you're willing to do because you have to find those spaces to do more. You have to find those opportunities to say, I'll go cover that because nobody else will. I'll go be there. I'll do three games when everybody else is doing two today. You know, you just, you find that extra moment and that's what it takes. I mean, honestly, because there's so many people entering this now, you better do more. You better be able to go across multimedia. It's like you've been in podcasts, you've done radio, you've done print. 
So you've got that experience and that flexibility to go to any format and say, I've done that. And that's really important to have in this business. Yeah. People message me sometimes because I, I am young. I feel young. I don't know when that's going to end to where I feel young because I am 25. It doesn't but, stop. It doesn't. Like, <laughs> I no, never feel grown like, up. I never feel no, grown I, up. I, I still, I, I still feel young. Right. So, uh, you know, I feel like I've done a lot of things, but I'm nowhere close to where I ultimately want to be. Uh, but it's always, and you know, people message me and they're like, you know, how did you get to this point? Like, uh, if you can offer me any advice and I love to help however I can. So if anybody listens to this and wants to message me or, you know, wants to message David, of course, I mean, we're happy to offer whatever advice we can. And, you know, I, again, I'm still so young into this, that I, I have a long way to go and a lot to learn. Uh, but whenever people message me, I'm just like, they're like, how did you do it? Or what do I do to really start? I'm like, find whatever you can to try to do it. And and then just try. Like, I, I, I emailed every newspaper, even though some newspapers were hours apart. Like, I'm willing to go do that to get a start in the industry. Like, that's just how hungry that I, I was and still am to drive hours to go cover whatever high school sporting event that I could. Uh, and then at the student newspaper, it was just ingrained into that newspaper at the time, uh, very print journalism values and not very multimedia. So when I approached there at the student paper about doing a Raging Cajuns podcast, it was almost like, yeah, you can do it. We're not going to pay you any kind of extra or anything <laughs> like that, but you can do it. And then at the time I was like, yeah, of course. I mean, it falls on the umbrella of maybe sports editor duties. So I was like, I'm just going to start a podcast and see where it goes. And while only about five people a week listen to it, it taught me a lot about podcasting. It taught me a lot about editing. It taught me uh, how to reach out and build some connections, how to bounce off uh, another person, you know, work with other people, you know, research, outline, you know, just doing that once a week, even though I knew no one was listening, I, it was benefiting not only me, but for other students that were working at the newspaper that wanted to do it, you know, because we were all hungry. And it was funny because I was talking to Paige, you know, she's heading out, we're heading out West and she's finally doing what she wants to do. Um, and I said, it's so motivating and it feels so good to be around other people that want to do the thing that you're doing. Like whether that's healthy competition between one another or learning from one another or just being in the same situation as one another like it's so motivating to do that, um, that I was, I'm just happy for Paige. And then, you know, I, I'm happy that I've met people along the way. And then that's why I just tell people, like, when you get into the industry, like being around other people that are hungry, like being around other people that are just want to do what you want to do, but keeping a healthy competition, like, I, of course, along the way, I've been told, no, I've been rejected. Uh, I've been told like, you know, he's just the student, like, what does he know? You know, like, why did you, I, like, I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not here to throw anybody. It's just, I've been told like, you know, why are you letting the student on the air? You know, yeah. pretty, pretty much like he doesn't know anything. It's just like, you're going to get told that you're going to be criticized. Um, but my advice is, you know, just try because you never know what it's going to lead you and what you're going to learn and what kind of connections that you're going to build. 
So, I mean, that's just what I say whenever someone's like, you know, how, how did you do this? And I think it resonates with people because we have very different approaches. In, in, but yours is honest to you. And it's, if it's authentic to you, and I, that's what I tell people all the time is you can't be other people. You can't come into this and say, I'm going to be like the people on ESPN or I'm going to write like this person. You steal from people. You absolutely do. I have inspirations who I look at and I say, I want to incorporate more of that into my writing, or I want to make sure that I remember to do these things when I'm on the air. But when you're doing a podcast and you have nobody listening, it's like getting rips up, reps up in the gym. That's your shooting. You know, those are the nights that that you're getting your work in because you have to have reps behind the mic and you're not going to get live game situations. Most of the time, you're going to get those when nobody else is looking and that's where you fail and that's where you mess up and you have to take those opportunities to mess up and figure out who the hell am I when I'm on the mic? Absolutely. I, I did those reps for a while with that Raging Cadence podcast uh, and then it led me and two others that worked at the Vermilion sports staff to a weekly radio show at KRVS where it taught me more about radio. Like it was, it was more of a radio environment there at KRVS. And I remember it was my professor, uh, James Lovell. <laughs> uh, I mean, he believed in me from day one when I started in the journalism program. Uh, and we would just talk. He recommended that we pitch a radio show because of our podcast. He heard it. He liked the energy uh, from it. And he said, go pitch it to KRVS. And KRVS had a turnaround of uh, like no student worked there in years since the new program director took over because he wanted to clean house and make it more professional. So when you have three students going to pitch a sports show on a station that was mostly Cajun music, hard sell. <laughs> but we did it and they loved it. And they saw that not only were, you know, were we trying and we were going to try, we were going to do it on a professional level or, or up to the standard that they expected at KRBS. And with that and in taking that opportunity, uh, I um, admittedly never like, uh, like, kind of took credit for it or anything like that. I was just like letting my two other like uh, friends, you know, just like getting their reps up because I, w I did start the podcast and mm -hmm. I felt like I was getting reps up already. You know, I feel like I had some experience from being the sports editor and the daily advertiser to where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to let it grow to where I feel like if we land, if since we landed the sports show, uh, like what other students could benefit from this, of like, if we show that we can do it, like if other students want to get in at KRBS, like we want to set that standard and have other students have that opportunity. So it, it was nice to do that. Um, yeah, I, it's just, it, it's funny about like the, the different journeys and things like that, because, you know, I, I've known Clint, the producer at 1 through 7 The Game for years, uh, just covering basketball, Cajun mm -hmm. basketball games, Cajun baseball games. And then I met Ray along the way at those Cajun basketball games. And then we built a connection to where I was hired at 1037 the game. Uh, and I was able to show them my portfolio based on everything that I've done before. Man, it's, it's, it's just, a, it's interesting. And it's just been a pleasure to watch you grow. Um, but the reason we brought you here today, of course, is to talk some Pelicans basketball season ended on Sunday night uh, with the loss of the Lakers. Pelicans in the season with four straight uh, L's. 
one game better than last season. Um, initially, as the as the clock wound down and you watched the game come to an end, what were your thoughts about the season? I had my thoughts predetermined. I don't think it mattered what happened in the Los Angeles Lakers game. That game could not have changed my thoughts on the season. Realistically, I had some good, like, pretty fair expectations for the Pelicans. I think a lot of people did. Some people probably had the expectations a little bit too high, high mm-hmm. uh, to be fair. Like, I've heard people talking about the Pelicans being a six seed this past season, and I wasn't able to get all the way up to that point. Uh, I had them at a nine or ten seed this season before it started and they failed to reach that. So when they failed to reach pretty realistic expectations and me being the optimist around the team, then I got to say it was a little disappointing. The season overall, uh, the team success, just what the team was able to do, it was disappointing. And you know, we'll always point to the individual players, and rightfully so, because you can give credit and then you can give criticism, You know, give credit to some of the player development that we saw uh, from Jackson Hayes to kill Alexander Walker even Zion Williamson, uh, Lonzo Ball had a career best season and a new role for him. So you saw individual players and you put it like that, you know, it was a success for the individuals, but collectively it was a failure. And that, that's fair to say, because overall it was a disappointment when you're a fan of the team and you're not trying to be a fan of individuals, because when you're a fan of individuals, you're going to get lost in your feelings towards a certain player and lose sight of what the team should be doing. Yeah, I have never been around a Pelicans team that has so many factions of fans where you have the Brandon Ingram Collective and you have the Zion Williamson Collective and you have the Lonzo Ball Collective and now you have a Nikhil Alexander group, Nikhil Alexander-Walker group, and you have a Jackson Hayes group. And they're just all these folks who have different agendas for those individual players And that is really weird for a team that hasn't had a ton of success for there to be so many individualized agendas. You know, obviously that comes from Lakers players coming in and there's this attention on them, certainly. But I think also, too, as, as an NBA fan, you're seeing more of I'm a fan of the player rather than the team. I will follow the player from place to place, but I don't really care about that team. How much of a shift have you noticed that? Because I'm a little older in this, so I've really noticed it over the years. How much have you noticed that where fans are much more player-focused? I've noticed it in, uh, over the last few years uh, that th- this has happened. It's happened probably longer before because, you know, when I talk to other old, like older uh, NBA fans, you know, like the NBA is really marketing itself towards these individual players, like these individual brands. It's not – so much about the team and you know what I I'm there for it you know I'm there for the individual player success and everything like that but when it comes to the team that I follow I never want to lose sight of the team success or what the team is doing and, and you know I find myself doing that from time to time like I'm happy when Zion goes for 37 12 and 7 you know like I'm happy whenever that happens or when Brandon Ingram has a big shot like against Boston or something like so I lose sight and sort of the individuals and I, I think other people when they're not so ingrained with the team they've got to latch onto one individual player on the team and then try to have some view or perspective about the team overall uh, but what I kind of don't like is when the team you don't feel like the team is servicing your one player 
uh, to a point where I think you're not offering some fair criticism of the team because like with the New Orleans Pelicans uh, specifically, there are some like real like roster construction issues and just like, you know, uh, like other concerns about the team, like if it, whether it was defensive issues, you know, some offensive yeah, that people were like, well, you're not playing to the strengths of Lonzo Ball and then that's why you're failing or you're not like. Uh, putting the ball enough in Brandon Ingram's hands, you know, or like Zion Williamson's hands. That's why this team is failing. It's just like, you know, look at the team overall and what they're doing and you're probably losing sight. But for people that, um, you know, focus so much on the individual player, it's something that ha- has been happening in the NBA. And when you mentioned that you have this Lakers group of fans that go into the Pelicans uh, team, you're, you're just like, do you know, kind of like the context around this team, like what they've been through in the past that has led them all the way up until this point. And like, uh, you, you, a lot gets lost in rooting for an individual player that I I think we lose sight of the team. Sometimes I I do that from time to time too. Like I'm like Najee Marshall, uh, you went for 20 and 10 in this game. And it's just like, that's fine. But I'm like, wait, the Pelicans, they're, they have 31 wins. (laughs) That's not good. (laughs) <laughs> so I find myself, uh, you know, guilty of that from time to time, but I have noticed it. When you look at this team this season, you had more than almost twice as many games out of Zion Williamson than you had during his first year. Um, this was for, for the, about 60 games. This was the healthiest team in the NBA. Uh, you did change two starters and, but it would, you would say even with the downgrade from Drew Holiday to Eric Bledsoe, you figured you had an uptick from Zion Williamson, not only in production, but in games played. Brandon Ingram keeps his production basically the same from last season. We would say as a whole, I guess, that that depending on what camp you fall in, either Steven Adams is a wash compared to Derek Favors or he was better than. There's nobody saying that he's worse than Derek Favors. Um, so you have that. So you your lineup was solid this year. Like I said, Lonzo had um, a career year, played also the most games that he's played in his career. To end up with just one more win, Josh Hart was a year older. Nikhil Alexander-Walker, a year older. Jackson Hayes, a year older. All those players, to end up with one game better, that ha- yeah, there's, I don't think there's any other way to say it's a disappointment. And still you can be optimistic and that push pull right now of being realistic about what the achievements on the court were and still understanding that this team has potential that has to be met. That conversation also seems to get lost uh, right now that there's either you're on one side or the other. This isn't a disappointment. We're okay. Or people are accusing you of being Debbie Downer and saying the Pelicans suck. (laughs) Well, it's funny because I think I get viewed uh, in a Pelicans apologist kind of way. Yeah, rightfully so. I mean, the way I tweet about the team is kind of just fun and optimistic and not overly critical of the team, even though sometimes it is warranted to be overly critical of the team. When I view the season, it's almost like all of these positives never lined up. Uh, in a timely fashion, like Nikhil Alexander Walker and Jackson Hayes' development didn't start until after the all-star break when you started to see the injuries pile up uh, after the all-star break. And then when you start to see the development from them, it it was almost like, you know, the team was start felt like it was starting to get together. You know, Nikhil Alexander Walker slides into the starting lineup due to some injuries. 
and, and then it's like, hey, this team's kind of winning some games. And Lonzo Ball has a great February, but he, he's still he's battling with some injuries. Like you see the the ankle injury, whether it be some thumb injury uh, late in the season. And then, you know, it never really matches up with what Brandon Ingram was doing in the earlier part of the season where I thought he looked really good. And then along the way, he started to really show some inconsistencies in his game, especially defensively. And then Zion Williamson's defensive growth didn't happen until late in the season. Uh, When you need your two stars to play well at the same time all the time, especially on a team like the Pelicans, it just never matched up with with the development of your younger players. So it kind of never aligned, Uh, even though they were healthy. uh, You you still see like the J.J. Redick and Nicola Melli what they were able to serve for the team, even as a threat of a shooter, still never really aligned with what Zion and B.I. were doing. It just felt like it never lined up in a timely fashion. That's not an excuse. It's just what it was. And then I think what sort of contributed to this, like, uh, disappointing season, ultimately. And it's disappointing not in a long-term, this franchise is doomed kind of way, just in the short-term disappointing because 20 teams get into some kind of postseason uh, tournament and you failed to reach that when you were mostly healthy all throughout the season. Can we go back to like the four and two start? And then they're almost five and two. Mm -hmm. Okay. So four and two start, they, uh, they can be five and two and then whatever happens against Indiana happens, right? We know the the inbounds play, the turnovers. And it's almost, it's almost like, you know, if that changes, because it was the start of a five-game losing streak, uh, if that changes, does the team change? And I review it looking back on the season. I don't think it changes anything. I just think it told us who the Pelicans were this season. Uh, when, you, when you look at it, just the blown lead late in the game, mismanage, mismanagement by Stan Van Gundy, and just the players' awareness of we have two timeouts and you don't call a timeout. Uh, Brandon Ingram doesn't go up to help the guards. Uh, the guards with a just uh, poor handle on the ball, uh, they they don't hold on to it. So you kind of look at it, poor guard play, Brandon Ingram awareness, which his attentiveness needs to improve uh, moving forward. Uh, and then you have some mismanagement by Stan Van Gundy. It's like, wait, if this, this is just who the team was, blowing the lead and then all of that happening, that was just the start of showing who this team really was this season. Yeah, it was consistently inconsistent um, when you never have a winning streak longer than four games, when teams like Houston had six-game winning streaks, when teams like uh, Charlotte come back this season and they had a huge overhaul and have a very young core. Uh, you know, it, it, you, you expected to see at some point for the Pelicans for it to kick in for at least one extended stretch to get a, a nice um, display of, of consistency, and that just could never happen. They'd get to three wins lose they get to you know two wins couldn't get the third and then they might win another two on the back end but they could never get that long streak together and last night during the broadcast and I'm sure you saw David Griffin talking about this uh he said the two biggest things that this team needs are shooting and basketball IQ my question then is a you know part of the shooting is the basketball IQ because these guys don't know where to go they don't move without the basketball you see stagnancy in the offense but B, if you know that this team lacks basketball IQ, how many of these guys have to go? Because you, you're not going to draft four guys with basketball IQ this offseason. You can't sign five and six guys. So somebody's got to go. 
who do you think would be the initial targets? Because at least two guys are gone from this team. Who do you think initially, if somebody asked you today, what two players do you think are not back next season? I kind of look towards Lonzo Ball as one, uh, even though he did show that he can kind of fit with Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson in that role that Stan Van Gundy uh, wanted for him uh, in this season. You know, the end of the year press press conferences were today and Lonzo was talking about, you know, he's a basketball player. He's going to do what the coach has him do. And he felt like he adjusted pretty well to a role that he's never been in in his career. So uh, then, then you look at just what the financial decisions are for this team. And do you want to keep, you know, Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson have been part of two 31 seasons uh, in their careers. And then the price that you're going to have to pay like you might have 20 million dollars 20 million dollars a year tied to all three of them and is it to say that they're a problem together no but can you build around that with the financial ties that you're going to have to have with Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, and Zion Williamson, uh, you don't want to kind of put yourself in a bad situation of building around the roster. Uh, so I, I kind of look at Lonzo Ball as an option, even though, like he says, he, he, he wants to be in New Orleans. Zion wants to say he's, he wants to be in New Orleans. It's just, it, is it what's in the best interest? Uh, and, and you can't keep everybody, right? So it, it's going to have to be some major changes. And Lonzo Ball feels like it would be the major change. Uh, and then you go in with a another kind of player like, you know, I go back to David Griffin's second quarter interview and he kind of like danced around the Josh Hart situation as well, where we love what Josh Hart brings to the team. But did we just find that with like Najee, Najee Marshall? Marshall? Yeah. You know, did we just find that and we just signed him to a, a three guaranteed seasons uh, on, on the deal at less okay, than two yeah. million dollars a year? Yeah, like, and Josh Hart's going to demand maybe like fourteen million. If I had to like just throw a number out there, like it, he, it, it'll probably be from ten to fourteen. Yeah, like he might he might be a double digits. Let's just say like over ten million dollars a year contract for Josh Hart. And can you tie yourself to that whenever you have you, the quote unquote like kind of do everything guy? We need you to catch and shoot and provide some hustle plays, and that's Najee Marshall. So and Najee Marshall gives you more length. He gives you more athleticism and he can finish at the rim, which is something that Josh struggles to do in the half court. Josh is good at the, he can finish when he's in the open transition, but at the rim in the half court, he's not, he's not really an an exceptional athlete. And his three point percentage is league average. It's not exceptional either. And I think we've seen that Najee, if you give him some time, I think that shot will develop, but his size, his ability to pass the ball, he can also get double figure rebounds when he, when he needs to, yeah, I think that's a really difficult decision for the Pelicans to make because when you're talking about that financial flexibility for a small market, I would bet on the 22, 23-year-old at a million dollars over the 26-year-old who's also been injured a couple of times and maybe has plateaued in his career, will always be a sub. Maybe Najee can, has a higher peak. We don't know. And you look at it, Josh Hart was in that six-man role if you like Nikhil Alexander-Walker there in that six-man role, not necessarily starting, but you've kind of got your six-man. Uh, we don't know where Kyra Lewis Jr. is uh, in his development quite yet, what a full offseason is going to do. So I'm going to leave Kyra a little bit out of the conversation whenever it comes to you know part of the rotation moving forward. You just don't know what you have quite yet. 
Um, so you, you kind of look at it with Nikhil Alexander-Walker. If you wanted to replace that six man off, off the bench, you, you could have him in that role. I think he's more comfortable as a starter, but you, you never know. Uh, it's not about maybe who starts, but about who's closing and right. who's getting the most minutes. So um, I kind of view the game in that way. And yeah, you Nikhil know, is, a, is a Manu Ginobili type where he doesn't start, but he comes in and he's a difference maker and closes the game with the starting group. Then, you know, I think that that might be a great role for him because they need dynamic scoring with that second unit. Yeah. And then you replace your six man and Josh Hart with Nikhil Alexander Walker. So there you go. And then Lonzo Ball, uh, you kind of look at the backcourt play, Eric Bledsoe and Lonzo Ball, something definitely needs to change with the backcourt play. And again, with the financial ties that you're going to have to give Lonzo, I know there's some great relationships there in New Orleans, but they're still so young and they're coming up together. Of course, you're going to be tied to uh, someone that you're so early on in your career, but then stepping back, you know, are we sure it's going to be what's best for them moving forward? So of course, some tough decisions are going to have to be made. But if you ask me, it seems like the ones that David Griffin mentioned, you know, with Josh Hart and Lonzo Ball and the ones that he was asked about, it felt very vague in the answer uh, uh, of what he gave of like, do we view Lonzo Ball and Josh Hart as championship players? And I feel like if they're viewing in, in those parameters, then they're going to come to a decision where we're not bringing them back moving forward. Certainly who's available is going to be a big part of that too. And what teams are offering what players Steven Adams is a difficult decision, I think as well for the Pelicans, because you saw Willie Hurd and Gomez at a very uh, affordable price, put up similar numbers, six double doubles in his last 13 games. Um, showed some scoring touch uh, and a look at the ability to get away from the basket a little bit. And then with Jackson Hayes being able to perform given his given when given 20 point, 20 minutes a night, if you can play those two for 48 minutes, as we saw during these games, Steven Adams could be another place to save some money and really, because does he justify at this point, keeping Jackson Hayes on the bench for 20 plus minutes, keeping Willie Hearn and Gomez on the bench when they're producing similar type numbers. They are producing similar type numbers and you won't get an argument out of me on that because absolutely. Uh, one thing that I can see the Pelicans convincing themselves of is looking at some of the matchups that you go against with like a, a Jonas Valanciunas or a Joel Embiid, uh, Billy Hernan Gomez and Jackson Hayes got cooked in, in those matchups. You know, it's just like you would want Stephen Adams there uh, for those kind of matchups to where you're not at so much of a disadvantage because I think Stephen Adams could guard. That's a good matchup for him. And then Billy Hernan Gomez kind of and Jackson Hayes kind of get caught against some strength uh, there down low. And then of course you're going to miss some offensive rebounding. Uh, I think Stephen Adams puts himself in a much better position than Billy Hernan Gomez or Jackson Hayes does. Uh, at this point so it's about positioning for Steven Adams you know uh even though his uh, his his tip outs annoyed me at, at, at times I was like what are you doing you just grab the ball <laughs> so he, he puts himself in great position gives some extra possessions but you're right you know again if we're talking money and if we're talking value at that price I, I like what Steven Adams does to the, uh, does for this team. I went back to some earlier games because I'm trying to think of content to do during the offseason. Uh, and I went back to some earlier games. Man, he creates a lot of space for Brandon Ingram there in that mid-range game. Uh, and th there's some stuff to be figured out with Steven Adams that you like and then you also don't like. So with Steven Adams, you like that he almost sets a block there for Zion whenever he drives to the rim. 
but then you also don't like how Stephen Adams' man is still there. <laughs> and it's like three people around Zion whenever he drives to the room. Uh, and then I go back to the Wizards game with uh, Gafford. You know, he was a terror okay. in that game. Both, I mean, Gafford was, is an exciting young player. And he, he dominated. Is. And I, go, I went back to that game and I was reviewing it. And I just kept thinking, like, can you send Adams – to the top to set a screen for Zion instead of playing the two man game with Brandon Ingram and Zion, because what you're doing with Steven Adams due to some limitations, he's there in the paint and Gafford's going to help off of Steven Adams to help on the drive. So whenever, whatever two man game you have between Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson is almost neutralized because when they go into the paint, they're seeing multiple bodies and they're seeing someone like Gafford there down low who was a terror that game, but then you're just inviting more people down low. Uh, and then another earlier game, I believe it was against, it might've been this first San Antonio matchup, but there's a nice like high low with uh, Steven Adams where he passes it down low to Zion. But see, Steven Adams is outside of the free throw line and then Zion's playing one-on-one. So there's some nice things to explore there if you want to uh, with Steven Adams, but if you can find another big there in the rotation, uh, if you felt like Steven Adams has taught Bailey Hernan Gomez and if he has taught Jackson Hayes to be in a better position for the offensive rebounds, to set good screens, then that's a decision that you're going to have to make in the offseason where I feel like they could find a team for Steven Adams. I feel like teams are going to be like, we love that toughness. We love what Steven Adams can bring to our team. Let's see what we can offer for him. So I think maybe in Boston. Yeah, Boston, right? And so they they could bring someone uh, – they could find a suitor for Stephen Adams if they want to. I, I do get concerned about some of the things that you're leaving off of the table, and there's going to be some question marks uh, because David Griffin had, did mention toughness. And, like, you know, the three things that he listed, I want to, like, rearrange those just a little bit. Number one, I would like basketball IQ. Number two, give me shooting. Uh, and then three, give me toughness because James Johnson gives me toughness. But James Johnson doesn't give me league average shooting that I need around Zion and BI (laughs) that that was desperately missed. Uh, So give me basketball IQ, then shooting. And then this whole toughness thing of which, of course, Stephen Adams brings, which which you can talk yourself into. Like, I can see them bringing back Stephen Adams for just another year Mm -hmm. uh, under that because they did some nice things together there with Zion and BI creating space and everything like that. So Yeah, I give Adams credit because all year I said he was the smartest player on the floor for the Pelicans most nights. Um, he, he His basketball IQ is, IQ is legitimate. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's always going to come down to value and what you expect with his body because I, 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 it, was, it was frustrating to see how many times he broke down on the second half of the season. And this is a guy who does not typically play 30 minutes a night over his career. He stays around 28 minutes to 30 minutes. Um, but over that is, is a stretch for him. And he had to play a lot of minutes this season um, because the backups were inconsistent at the beginning of the year. And I think also there was some, some organizational dispute because I can't believe that Stan Van Gunny wanted to sit as many guys as he sat at the beginning of the year. I think he wanted to go deeper into his bench and find out what players could play. Um, but I think that there was a push for certain guys to get minutes. And I understand the organization wants to evaluate guys and understand what they have on, um, in the, in, on the roster. But at the same time, again, you want to win games and you want to give your coach the, 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 the leeway to try to find ways to win those games. 
they were playing an eight-man rotation the week before All-Star break, I believe. Yeah. And I was looking at it, I was like, man, they, they were – you know what? I mean, this is a playoff-type rotation that you're playing just in the middle of the season. Uh, it was during a time when your bench was a little questionable. The, the bench production wasn't there, and we were talking about – who do you move off of? Um, uh, and it was ultimately J.J. Redick and Lomelli. But uh, I feel like with Stan Van Gundy, he looks down his bench and he's like, where's my versatile lineup? Where's the different looks that I can throw uh, teams? Because I can't, I can't find a lineup that I can piece together. And it wasn't until after the All-Star break when they got wings. Like even, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily a fan of Wesley Wundu's game at this point. He could develop into something nice. Um, maybe, but I'm not necessarily a fan of Wesley Wondu's game. Um, but you know, the versatility of Wesley Wondu, he had ball handling responsibilities with the Orlando Magic, and that was dating back to the bubble. Whenever I was going back to watch Wesley Wondu, what he could bring, you know, some ball handling responsibility there. Uh, he he was running pick and roll with Nikola Vucevic, and, and then James Johnson. You know, we saw what he was able to do. I, I love watching James Johnson pass the ball. You know, I love the way he moves off the ball because. Even last night uh, against the Lakers, felt like he was the only one moving off ball mm-hmm. uh, and, and cutting to the rim and giving options. So that versatility was starting to get there. You know, Najee Marshall giving more minutes, and we know how versatile he is. But earlier in the season, felt like Stan Van Gundy couldn't look down his bench and be like, what different looks can we give teams? And then that, that's when you go into sort of the David Griffin and the roster construction conversation because, you know, he didn't give Stan Van Gundy a lot of options for versatility. And he admitted that, which is, I guess, you know, it's reassuring in one level that he understands that. But on the second hand, it's really frustrating because over two seasons, we've said this about this roster. We thought it was incomplete before last season, and it went into this season with some very obvious holes to it. Um, and like you said, the flexibility, you had very a number of players who did the exact same thing or either were unable to do the same things like shooting, like moving without the ball, like creating for themselves with their dribble. The Pelicans have precious few players who can create their own shot. Maybe Zion and Brandon might be the only two and Nikhil might be the only three players on this roster who can consistently create their own shot. So you have that problem with this team and it just, it was surprising. Not that David Griffin didn't make any major moves. I I don't think any of uh, uh, you and I would have advocated a major move, but the fringe moves of not getting rid of JJ sooner of not moving Nicola Melli when it was obvious that he was a failure early in the season. I think that cost the Pelicans those five or six games that would have gotten them into the play. I say you can't fix everything in an off season. I think we all recognize you can't fix everything in an off season. I think what they were looking at, especially with the bubble performance and what they saw, there was no fight from the team outside of JJ Reddick. J.J. Redick was probably the only player there in the bubble to really look like he cares. Uh, And so they were looking at it like, we need guys that care. (laughs) And they were like, we need tough defenders. We need tough guys. And let's get Steven Adams there. We, we, We need a center. You know, we need that Derek Favors replacement. And you know, Derek Favors was battling some issues there in, in his season with the Pelicans, whether it be back injuries or personal issues. You know, we have to recognize how much Derek Favors was going through in his season with the Pelicans because I kind of like Derek Favors whenever he was on the court. I was like, he, he communicates well. Uh, you know, he's another guy that is just smart. Uh, um, so I like Derek Favors. But they looked at it and they're like, we've got no fight on this team. Uh, we're, we're playing Frank Jackson 
on the on, right now in the bubble. So let's just uh, let's just go ahead and add guys. And there might have been some missteps along the way, especially with Eric Blood. So, <laughs> and I know they were looking at it. Second team all defense, a guard, you know, in the backcourt that we could start. Stan Van Gundy's kind of guy. Uh, if we if we hire Stan Van Gundy, let's let's get a Stan Van Gundy guy. And boy, was uh, Eric Bledsoe Stan Van Gundy's guy. I, no one has more trust in a one person. Than Led Stan the Van team Gundy. in minutes this year. <laughs> Led the team in minutes. <laughs> so they they were looking at it like let's just get guys that. I think could fit well with what Stan Van Gundy wants to. And then there's some miscalculations, you know, um, along the way. So I, I think they lacked wing depth, of course, because I was concerned about who was backing up BI. You know, I was like, who? I, I don't know. So, there still wasn't a small forward on the roster, really. A legit, like Najee's more of a, a three and D. He's not really a small forward yet, but yeah, there wasn't a legitimate small forward all season. And like people were freaking out because Sam Van Gundy said, uh, or no, David Griffin, I think, said Zion is a three in the league. And then people were like, oh, man, he's a he's a small ball five. He's he's a power forward. You know, he's not a three. And then it was funny. They were like, he's a point guard, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, people were freaking out. And then, all right, so if we have this idea that Zion is a three, then where's the wing death? Like, even when if you view Zion as a three and you know Brandon Ingram is either the three or that experimental thought that we all have, Brandon Ingram could be a shooting guard, which I would still like to see. Let's just try it. Let's let's run it out there. I don't know if he can defend the two. That's that that's yeah. the thing for me, is because he's running around defending the three. Running around would be tough for him at that two spot. I I I understand. But you know what? If we're getting experimental, get experimental. Uh and then I think I think they we're like, we can't fix everything. Let's just add these vets. You know, the the example of like, you know, we need veterans to go along with the amount of young guys that we have on the team. It just wasn't the right moves. I mean, I don't know if trading Eric Bledsoe and keeping George Hill would have been the answer for this team. I, I, I don't know. It's something that we did talk about before the season mm-hmm. and that kind of got lost as we went on. Like no one does the understandable. I get it. No one does the, well, what if we kept George Hill combo? Because the Pelicans' problems were more than a backcourt, or they yes. were more than a guard. Uh, and I think that Eric Bledsoe, when Zion and Brandon Ingram were out, you know, he was still showing that, you know, he, he just wasn't uh, having a great year. He showed that he can still be serviceable for a team. I just don't think he was a fit with the rest of the roster. And I don't, so they mismanaged that. I, I honestly don't think – look, you take a guy who is playing on the team that had the best record in the NBA the last two years – and you send him to a team that's struggling to be in the play-in, the, at, at the age that he is, he's going further away from a championship, not getting closer to it. And I think that's hard for anybody. And, and we talk about just the adjustment of doing, of moving during the pandemic, which is what you had to do. You go to a new city during the pandemic and you go to a place that it's not about New Orleans. I think people will say, you know, people don't want to come to New Orleans. I think it's just you don't want to get away from winning a championship. You, you, and you've been replaced by a guy that people have already been talking about for two years that Drew Holiday should have had the spots that Eric Bledsoe had on the all-defensive team. That's who the Pelicans targeted, Eric Bledsoe. He didn't belong on those spots. And so when he gets here, he's got a fan base that's already been looking at him for two years in an environment that he really didn't want to be in. And I don't 
say that to be negative. He didn't handle it the way JJ handled it. That really turned people off both in New Orleans and in Dallas, but he didn't play up to par. And, and it's, it was really disappointing, but no, he is not the scapegoat for this season. There were failures at management. There's failures at coaching and there's failures among the players and everybody's got to be accountable for that. And I think that's, that to me has to be the biggest shift this off season is that there can't be any more excuses. This is year three. Um, and it's not, it was not a bottom of the barrel rebuild that the Pelicans started. They came in with Zion Williamson, Brandon Ingram, you know, you were given number two, number three picks and, 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 and you, you weren't starting from nothing. You weren't the Orlando magic. So here you are two years in and year three, Chris Paul made the playoffs year three, Anthony Davis made the playoffs Zion Williamson for the sake of the Pelicans and the NBA. Because you look at these play-ins, you got the Warriors playing the Lakers. That's TV bonanza. And the, and the NBA has already put Zion on TV more than any other player the last two years. Well, they've got to make the – there's no choice here. They have to make the playoffs, and they can't be skating in at 10 or 9 either. I agree. I, I, I've seen that sentiment a lot where this is the season. There's no more uh, youth excuses. There's no more fit excuses. Uh, you've got to see some real growth and it translates to winning. Uh, I, I've seen across the board that people are done making the, those kind of excuses. You know, context is important whenever it comes to the season. I think we can all recognize that in, in a COVID-19 impacted season, uh, in a season with limited practice time, you know, you're playing like four games in six days is extremely tough on your body. Uh, and then you have a new head coach with two weeks of training camp. You've got two new starters. Again, the context is there to where you can kind of build in maybe why they weren't as successful as you thought they would be, uh, as we all thought they could be. And it's just like, I get it. And then now you're going to have a full offseason. Now you've already seen how great uh, Zion Williamson is. You've already seen like Brandon Ingram is an all-star. Um, you, you've seen all these things. And whenever you have two players that a- average 50 points a game, <laughs> you can't fail. Like you, you can't, you cannot not make the playoffs. Uh, and it, it feels very clear on what they should do. Um, you know, whenever we talk about basketball IQ, that, that feels kind of hard to find. feels kind of hard to, uh, I guess, what, uh, quali- like qualify or just quantify. Or, yeah. Quantify. Like that feels hard to do. Shooting feels very easy to quantify. Like, you know, you shoot 40% from the three-point line, we would love to have you, you know, great. But you still, you don't know if somebody's got the guts to shoot because Darius Miller was a fantastic shooter, but never wanted to shoot. Right. And Nicola Melli, who has a great stroke in practice, never wanted to shoot or never had the confidence to shoot the ball well. And so, yeah, they, you, you, you can look for the skill, but the Pelicans problem has not been skill. They have talent. They have as much talent as any young team in the league. And we keep saying that. But they're not – they don't do those things. And you saw it during the broadcast night. Last night, David Griffin talked about it. Antonio Daniels has talked about it. I've talked about it. You've talked about it. This is not as far as understanding the game. You know, he talked about from uh, re- watching film, this has not been a good team in translating film study into, actu- into action on the court. Well, who is that? Somebody has to be the leader in there because like, you hate to keep going back to it, but it's an example – a Chris Paul understands everything that every that the other team is doing and can translate that to his teammates. Rajon Rondo did that for the Pelicans. 
uh, Drew Holiday could do that mentally. I don't know how good he was at translating it for other players. But there's not that guy yet on the Pelicans who is going to hold everybody accountable, who knows what everybody's responsibilities are to push those buttons. It either has to be Zion Williamson or Brandon Ingram has to fill that role. Uh, do you see one of them making that leap into being the unquestioned leader, not just in talent, but in on the court demeanor for this team? I think it's Zion. Uh, I think he recognizes the kind of responsibility that he has to the franchise already, uh, the way he conducts himself to the media already. It, it, I think he recognizes that it has to be him. And then with Brandon Ingram, I've always said, this was dating back to last season, I, Brandon Ingram always thinks he's the most talented on the court, and he has a right to think that whenever, you know, you have the game that he has, like a three-level scorer, you know, his playmaking, uh, he got to show that a little bit more this season. Uh, if I'm Brandon Ingram, of course, I want uh, to improve my lateral quickness on defense, just my engagement on defense as a whole. And then on the offensive side, my ball handling. Uh, I saw what it did for Jason Tatum there in Boston whenever you know you watch him in those big moments in the playoffs and his handle was a little shaky but then whenever he, he tightened it up then you can turn your three level scoring up to another level of I'm getting wherever I want and I'm not turning the ball over you know I'm not having these six turnover games seven turnover games my ball handling uh, is trustworthy enough to where I can get to where I'm going um, so I think for Brandon Ingram if what I'm improving on the offensive end is my ball handling. And then, of course, you're going to have to improve your engagement on defense. But so with Brandon Ingram, I don't think it's so much like a communicative thing. I think it's more of uh, lead by example with Brandon Ingram. Like what he's going to have to show to the rest of the team is that he's willing to play defense. But with Zion Williamson, he's going to have to be the communicator, the vocal leader, um, because you recognize that Brandon Ingram is not there yet. Uh, you don't know if he's going to get there. So with Zion Williamson, you're going to have to be the vocal leader. And I, there's some signs of that, of him in the earlier part of the season saying, you know, I'm not the guy that will voice my frustration towards the referees. And then as the season went on, you can kind of see him being a little bit more vocal in his frustration towards the referees. And, and I think that he's going to recognize, and I, I, this is what's going to have to happen. Uh, he's going to be have, have to be that vocal leader because everyone's looking towards Zion and, and what they're going to do. If you're going to be point Zion, if the offense is going to run through you, then things that run through you, you're going to have to be the one to clearly communicate that to the rest of your team. So I think that's where Zion has to be, uh, the vocal leader, and then with Brandon Ingram, the leader by example. Yeah, to me, that's the leap that they both have to take. It's not a, a question of skill. They will add skills. Uh, but for Brandon, I think the number one thing that I would see, want to see him on offense is learn how to, again, be more efficient. Because I, for me, when I see him, the more dribbles he takes, the less efficient he is. The more he tries to get past people with his ball handling, he, he tends to, to, to isolate himself from the other players. I have been saying this. I would love to see him watch a bunch of Reggie Miller film, a, a bunch of off the ball movement to catch the, the ball in, in better spots, use one dribble, get to a, a good shooting position and just elevate. And I'd like to see him do more mid post work. When, when Zion's off the floor, I'd like to see Brandon catch it at the mid post or at the elbow extended and use his height that way as a post up player, because the Pelicans don't have a post up option when Zion goes off the, goes off the floor. So you, to me, utilizing Brandon in that way 
would make it easier for him. And I think that's the biggest thing for him is offensively, it has to get easier. And we talk about spacing for him all the time, but he can create some of his own spacing as well by utilizing screens. But we also know this is a shitty screening team. They don't do a good job with that. So those will be leaps too. But I think the defensive part for both of them, Brandon has to become a better individual defender. Zion has to become a better team defender. And I think the one thing I want to see out of Zion too is he's got to start going through some people every now and then. Pick up the offensive foul. Pick up the hard defensive foul. And and let people know that your physicality is not something that they want to mess with. Because I think people respect him right now, but they don't fear him. And Zion has to put a little bit of fear into opponents. Yeah, and that's not saying, you know, he should have been done doing that from day one, you know, but he's, no, he's no, still no, learning. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like he's still learning. So you want to see you know, that, that fear from, from other players. And I think you might start to see that because you're starting to see him assert his dominance just a little bit more. I, I think in the second golden state game, I mean, he was drawing foul after foul after foul and he was pretty unapologetic about, about it. You, you know, he was really going through some people, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right uh, about uh, it starts at the top between the two guys. You look around the league uh, with the Philadelphia 76ers, like two of your best defenders are Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. You know, you look at the Clippers, it's Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Uh, you look at the Lakers, it's LeBron James and Anthony Davis. They're still setting the tone defensively for their teams. So you, you look at Utah, great defensive team. Uh, Rudy Gobert, great defensive player, defensive player of the year. Man uh, had the best defensive season in the last 30 years based on just the numbers. Yeah, you, you just you can go down some of the top teams and be like, yes, oh, their best players are the players that are playing some of the best. The Milwaukee, the Chris team. Middleton is an all NBA defender. Drew Holiday is an all NBA defender. Giannis is a defensive player of the year. So you've got, you know, wherever you go, if there's a championship team, a team that we're legitimate to talk about this season, maybe Denver is the only one that has one guy. And that's an Aaron Aaron Gordon, but they are a good team defense. They know their roles. They don't have an all NBA defender, but they they're sound. And that's the one thing the Pelicans have not been. Yeah. And maybe they can get to that point because what you liked from the defense uh, since the all-star break, you you liked what they were able to do. Uh, The drop coverage uh, was different and just their overall. Oh, I, I told you I was going back to earlier games. Just the closeouts were awful on on three-point uh contests like they were over uh they were over contesting they didn't run out they were confused you can literally see them confused on what to do on how to guard the three-point line didn't know who they were covering whether you should run that particular player off or let them shoot yes yes sometimes they would go out and then like retreat back because they're like, wait, I don't want to. And then, and then the guy makes it through. It's like, yeah, you should have just ran out for him, uh, ran out on him. Uh, so yeah, they were very confused, but you start to see some steps towards that. Maybe that's Najee Marshall getting a little bit more minutes. Maybe it's the versatility that you're seeing from the wings or getting more wing players that you're able to just provide more athleticism, a little bit more length out, uh, out there on the court to contest those shots. Um, that, that that's what it provides. But again, uh, you, you look at it like Didu Uzada, mm-hmm. who, who looks like already a good defender. Like I'm not ready to put him in the Drew Holiday like no. defensive He's played type three or, games. or anything like that. <laughs> it's like no. let's slow it down. Play three. Mind you, mind you, I, I'm very much pro Didu Uzada. No, he's played can't. three. He's played three games 
in a season where we can tell players are exhausted, by the way. And he's playing against teams that it's like you can tell players are ready to get to the finish line a little bit or get to the postseason. So he's playing teams like that. He's playing players like that. Um, so let, and I, that's just in fairness to DJ Lozada, because if you place those expectations on like he's a all NBA defender, then you're going to be disappointed when he gets beat on a backdoor cut or he gets beat on a And it's going to happen because he's a, he's going to be a rookie next year. Yeah, like you're going to be disappointed. So let's let's be fair to Didi there. But Najee Marshall, one of your best defenders, like it starts at the top uh, because then you look at – if we're looking at sort of the top teams there, like uh, a Matisse Thibel there for the 76ers who is an all-NBA defender. But, I mean, how – he can be helped by his top two players being great defensive players as well. Like I, I feel like you would see more uh, or better defense from other role players. If Zion and Brandon Ingram were the ones that took the lead defensively too, because look at Atlanta. They were, yeah, I mean, you look Atlanta. at like Atlanta, that was what seven games under 500 when they played the Pelicans. And it was, you know, right after Nate McMillan took over and they make, they win their division. Uh, by playing defense, Clint Capella is going to be all NBA defensive team. DeAndre Hunter was on is is one of those guys that we think could be an all NBA defender. Um, Cam Reddish is a solid team defender. You know, work need work on his offensive game, but they turned into they set their identity with Nate McMillan on the defensive end, and 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 that's you don't see championship teams who don't have a top five defense very often anymore. I mean, the last one I think that was outside the top four five was the Cavs during the regular season. I think they were like thirteen or fourteen when they won the championship, but they were number one in the East when they were in the postseason. So they turned it on, which is a LeBron James thing, but everybody doesn't have LeBron James. So as much as we want to look at what moves can be made for the Pelicans in the off season, in terms of additions, in terms of trades, don't forget what's going to have to happen inside the team on the roster already, you know, and what you have, because it feels like we don't have many question marks due to the development of Nikhil Alexander-Walker and Jackson Hayes. We feel like if they just uh, continue with that progression that they're already on, then they can be serviceable in the rotation. Uh, you know, but there's going to have to be really some leaps there for Zion and Brandon Ingram. And I get it. They're 25-point-per-game scorers. They lead your team. You don't want to put blame on them. But it's not so much blame as it is responsibility because – I had different expectations of Brandon Ingram when he signed the max contract, because now you're a max contract player. You're not a most improved player coming in from one team to the next, where you kind of have some leeway of, you know what? It's okay. If you break down defensively here and there, it's fine. If you uh, can't close the game out, uh, despite having some good uh, shooting numbers, it's fine. No, but there's different expectations whenever you sign the max contract. And I think it's more of, responsibility that you have to place on the team already uh, rather than, you know, just being unfairly critical of, of the players. Yeah. For Brandon, the expectations have to be different because this is going to be year six for Brandon. And you go into the year six, you're supposed to be now setting your template for your career. There's one thing Charles Barkley always says, if you haven't figured out who you are by the fifth year in the league, you have a problem. And so now Brandon going into year six, he, we know he can score. But there are a lot of guys in this league right now who can give you 22, 23, 25 points a night. There are a lot. Every team's got one, except for Orlando. But <laughs> everybody's got one. It's time now for the other things to come out. And if and defense is so much just about do you want to play defense? 
if you don't want to play defense, you're not going to. But if you want to and you want to contest it, I think that's what people see out of Nikhil, that even when he messes up, he's willing to fight through screens. He's willing to chase. He's willing to do what it takes to, to lay his body out. Same with Josh. He's not the greatest defender in the world, but he get, provides that constant intensity. Same with, with Najee. The reason the bench guys, Winnie and Gabriel, all of them is because they come in with an intensity that even that makes up for their shortcomings. And the starting group, you notice that difference. That level of intensity is not there defensively. They seem to be saving everything for the offensive end, and they can't do that anymore. You have to fatigue yourself on the defensive end. You look at the starting backcourt, uh, just on the defensive side, where they're not fighting through screen- screens whatsoever. Uh, and that's just a matter of one. There's no uh, what coverage are we playing. Uh, you know you're playing Steph Curry. Uh, you know – you're playing Donovan Mitchell. You know you're playing De'Aaron Fox. You know your assignment. Like, how do you not know? Because they're the number one guy on their team, and you have been tasked with guarding them. So, of course, you're going to know your assignment, but are you willing to fight through the screens that they're going to set at the top? You know, and there's been plenty of times this season where you can look at just them not wanting to fight through screens when in terms of, you know, while you view Nikhil Alexander-Walker and Kyra Lewis as players that still need development in their game, and a lot of it, understandably so, uh, they were at least willing to fight through some screens. You know, it felt like uh, Eric Bledsoe and Lonzo Ball weren't willing to fight over any screens, and then that put players in a lot of bad positions, especially when you look at the Mavericks game with Luka Doncic, where I feel like at that point in the season, uh, Luka was still going through some shooting struggles, there uh and it felt and then he got and then he went off because he was able to get in the middle of the floor dish it out he got comfortable he was able to do a step backs at that point because there was a level of comfortability there if well if you're not fighting through a screen if you're not getting my jersey if you're just letting me go then uh a lot of other players are in a bad position then i can just get going so and, and that's what we talk about all the time with uh defense at the top the point of attack defense has pressure to be much better like yeah, just this- pressure on ball like maybe every now and then pick somebody up three, four score, <laughs> like show them because once you do that, it, it the, the shot clock runs out and the, the offense is going to start scrambling at some point. And you can throw off their offensive sets uh, just by setting that tone at the point of attack. And I, I look at the game against Utah when I think Donovan Mitchell shot at seven of 21 from the field, something like that. And it was pretty much the first possession of the game. Lonzo balls, uh, in Donovan Mitchell's jersey from the tone, from the set. And, and that set the tone for what kind of night that Lonzo was going to have defensively on Donovan Mitchell and what kind of night shooting Donovan Mitchell was going to have because your point of attack defense was there. So, uh, yeah, that was a concern. And I want that to be better with that, whatever starting backcourt comes back next season, whether that is uh, Lonzo Ball and maybe it's Nikhil Alexander-Walker or maybe – I don't know if Eric Bledsoe, do you see Eric Bledsoe on this team next season? I think David Griffin understands he can't bring him back. Yeah. I think he, he has to understand that because I, I believe that if I was Nikhil Alexander-Walker all season, if I was uh, Kyra Lewis Jr., if I'm, and I saw what Bledsoe was doing night in and night out, admitting that he didn't pay attention at times, admitting that he wasn't in it all the way at times, and just you see it from his effort, nights that he shouldn't have been on the floor for 30-plus minutes. If you see that, you've come to work every day. I can't believe when you tell me that I had to earn minutes, and we talked about this before, you can't, you can't tell me I need to earn minutes when I'm clearly doing better than this guy. 
and you keep starting him every day, he's not going to be here when you win. Whatever that is, whatever in, uh, incarnation of this Pelicans team is that you expect in two to three years, there's no way you view Eric Bledsoe as a core piece of that. So get rid of him now while he still has value because he won't have it going forward. Somebody may want him as a sixth man. Somebody could come in and, and be a defender for your second unit, change a pace guard, can score in bunches sometimes, and you use him as a streaky guy. But at 32 years old, he cannot be the starting two guard for the New Orleans Pelicans because he certainly isn't a point guard because he doesn't create for others enough. So it, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And at 6'1", when the Pelicans need to be able to stop ball up top and you're playing with a small four in Zion Williamson and a guy in Steven Adams who's not really a rim protector, you better have good length up front to keep those guards from getting into the paint. Absolutely. And that's the point I was driving at, you know, setting the defensive tone at the top uh, the point of attack, like we mentioned, is going to keep the bigs and keep others uh, not in bad positions in terms of where they're rotating. And you can kind of see er earlier in the season, like they're really confused on what they should do defensively. And they get put in bad positions because I think when what they know basketball wise, if, if I see a free man running down the lane, I've got to help out in some kind of way. And then you get caught in the paint a little bit too much. And then they kick it out to a corner three or they kick it out to a wing three, they kick it out. So they got put in a lot of bad positions because guards were able to get into the paint at will. Uh, so whatever starting backcourt that you have next season is going to have to um, space the floor out a little bit, reliable shooting. I'm not asking for great shooting. Like I'm not asking for 43%. Like, I mean, best teams, the Lakers are not a great three-point shooting team. There are plenty, the Sixers are not a great three-point shooting team as far as numbers go, but they the ones that they take are good threes. They don't take bad threes. They don't take them in early in the shot clock when and the Pelicans do that far too often. They take threes at the beginning of the shot clock without moving the ball, or they take threes late in the shot clock because they haven't moved the ball and it ends up with somebody with three seconds to go trying to get it up. And I think if they improve the quality of their shots. The percentage will go up. You can win in the NBA making 11 threes a game, but you can't win in the NBA making 11 and missing 25, 26. You know, you have to be around that 38%, 40% range on a nightly basis and keep teams down. But the Pelicans were giving up 40% shooting on a night, you know, 40 plus to anybody. Bad three point shooting teams were making, you know, career highs. Guys were coming in and making career highs every night against that defense. That's the promise of this team because they can get good looks. The amount of good looks that are going to be generated based on Zion and Brandon Ingram, I, there's going to be a lot of nights where you, we see Zion get triple teamed in, in, in the paint. And then if you get reliable shooting around them, it, you've got to pick your poison at that point. You know, either go out and guard the three-point shooter or you're going to have Zion with free space to operate and do whatever he wants to do there uh, on the block, in the paint, whatever. Um, and Zion has showed like he has some moves like there's he's develops a little bit of a mid range. You know, I wouldn't call it like a consistent uh, tool in his bag quite yet, but he can show that he can do that. And then, I mean, he can get to the paint at will. So we'll get to the rim at will. So you're going to have to pick your poison if you start to have reliable shooting out there, not asking for great shooting. But guys that want to take the shot, guys that aren't scared to take the shot. Um, and then I think your backcourt can improve a lot. And how much your backcourt improves, uh, it's a guard-driven league. So once your backcourt improves, then I think you'll start to see more uh, wins for this Pelicans team. 
uh, in addition to what you need to see in the leaps of Zion and Brandon Ingram. Let's wrap on um, Stan Van Gundy. Uh, as you said, this was the guy that kind of got you in as the coach in 2009, got you uh, excited about basketball. I, you know, at the beginning of the season, I thought it was a, a maybe not the hire that we all would have thought, but I, I was willing to give Stan a chance. I think we saw development. I don't put everything on him um, because honestly, I, I, I look at it this, a lot of the same way I looked at Alvin last season. You weren't given what you were needed. You didn't get what you were asking for as far as your roster. You dealt with some situations that weren't really of your doing with Alvin getting the pandemic or having Zion miss half the season. But ultimately, some good came of it. Your players got better. Uh, and I think Stan's temperament, his accountability, the fact that he said, I'm not happy with this. I didn't come here to win 31 games. I didn't come out of retirement to do this. I came out to win. And he expects winning. Um, I think that that's a good thing. I think to say we haven't really seen that, that anger about losing. And I think you have to have people around there that hate losing. It's not about wanting to win. It's about hating to lose and you have to have a, a mix of those people and Stan is going to be honest with his team um, about what they cannot do and that's what they need to hear don't you you guys don't do this well I don't do something well and I know he's going to hold his staff accountable I think it's it's good going into year two with Stan Van Gundy there was only one time where I think I viewed it as throwing a player under the bus um, I think that's when he failed to maybe criticize Eric Bledsoe and kind of looked at the younger guards and kill Alexander Walker and Kyra Lewis when it was like, you still have Eric Bledsoe playing all these minutes. Uh, but for the most part, I viewed it as holding players accountable. There got to a point where uh, I'm sure we were all tired of hearing Gentry say it's not an effort issue. Uh, shots just didn't go in. We got very tired of it. And then you have an honest head coach in Stan Van Gundy uh, holding players accountable, something that needs to happen. And I was listening to a podcast, The Dunker Spot, with Nakai's Duncan, Steve Jones Jr., mm -hmm. and they had Chris Herring on from uh, Sports Illustrated. And I, I listened to it, and they were talking about Memphis. And, you know, people love to talk about Pelicans and Memphis in the same conversation. And they, were, they mentioned Taylor Jenkins there in the conversation because Taylor Jenkins would talk about his team. They'd say, you know, uh, they would have some mishaps late in the game, uh, but they would still kind of – they would win the game despite some mishaps, but there were still some things to work on. And Taylor – they were saying Taylor Jenkins was talking about this team like they were a high school team, that he was just proud that they won the game, you know, not really directly addressing the issues that were going on at hand with Memphis. And, uh, you know, as Steve Jones Jr., who's been an assistant coach in the NBA, was talking about, you know, I, he doesn't necessarily think that's good – moving forward uh, for your team if you just feel like you're skating by and not uh, holding players accountable and you're not recognizing what still needs to be fixed. You're just kind of happy with what you're doing. And that made me think about what Stan Van Gundy is doing and what kind of uh, seeds that he's placing within the team of like, I'm not happy that we look like a bunch of high schoolers that, or high schoolers could have done better than this, or, you know, I, I'm not happy with our late game execution. I'm not happy with the effort here. And so I think he's placing those seeds to where, you know, at least it's out in the open that this is not tolerated. This is not accepted. This is not what's expected from us. So I, I would rather have that openness uh, with a head coach and, I think as a coach in general, if I were a player on the team, I, I would want you to tell me what is wrong. 
uh, like what I need to improve on. Zion Williamson has always said he comes from tough coaching and he responds to it. Look how he responded this season to a great historic season already in year two. Look how he responded to it. So how's that going to look once they fix those things that they need to fix? At least Stan Van Gundy is not afraid to address those things. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. The, the, the timeouts, the, the challenges, his closing lineups, uh, you know, he's been out of coaching for a while. So you can kind of see maybe he, he kind of lost the touch when it comes to those little finer things in coaching that you need to uh, tune up in order to win a game. So uh, you can kind of see the mishaps that were happening and what Stan Van Gundy was doing. But there are some positives like I would rather him openly address those things. So it was good to hear that. How do you feel going into next season? I, f- <laughs> I feel uh, cautiously optimistic, I think, is how I feel going into next season. I, th- I like where the, some of the players are at. I'll, I'll say it. Zion, I like where he's at. Brandon Ingram needs to have a little bit of a better response uh, this season after what we saw because, you know, I, I become a – bit of a Brandon Ingram apologist admittedly because you know we talk about all the time about how Zion was affected by the roster and I don't think we focus enough about how Brandon Ingram was affected by the roster around him as well um but you know some of the flaws in Brandon Ingram's game were showcased this season uh and and if you're a max contract player it's almost like you have to be a little bit more consistent than that than than what you were but I still feel good about Brandon Ingram. Like I still feel good about Zion Williamson. I like what I saw from Jackson Hazen, the kill Alexander Walker. I like some of the, the rotation pieces. If you want to bring them back, of course, Nigel Marshall is going to come back, but if you want to bring in a winning Gabriel there, uh, Billy Hernan Gomez, you know, I, I like them. Um, uh, I'm not necessarily too attached to them if you want to move on, but you know what? Cheaper contract that can provide in the rotation. I like it. Uh, but the really the caution is what the team is going to do in the off season, because you're sitting on so many draft picks. Uh, you're, you're sitting, you're sitting on all of it to where you could make a move if you wanted to. But the thing about, if you make that move, you've got to hit it. Uh, there, there's, there's really no room for error at that point. And then whatever clock that Griffin keeps mentioning about uh, where, how, how we should win with Zion, whatever clock that that should be on it gets accelerated so much to a point where there's there's that margin of error is even less. And uh, so it's going to be the caution is if they make that one big move, it's got to hit, it's got to land. There's, there's really no excuse. Uh, And then if they don't go with the big move in the off season and try to add basketball IQ shooting uh, around the team, then uh, it's going to have to be like, start to make sense around the roster and, you know, with the quantity of moves that are going to have to be made. Um, it's just like, can you hit on at least, you, you know, majority of them rather than, so that's where my caution lies because there, there are some issues to address and there's a lot of uh, directions that this team can go in. That's why I'm cautious to see what they're going to do in the off season, but I still feel good about the players and even Stan Van Gundy. I'm willing to give him a chance to see what he can do with a full offseason with the roster. Yeah, I'm excited about next year as well. I think that, again, the drama is there. It's 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 baked in. And there will be teams next year in the West who are going to be very good. I mean, we saw 
that we, we, I think, you know, Memphis, if it continues to make progress, will stay a problem. I think Houston will be better next season. Uh, they won't be, they won't have the James Harden drama. They have these picks coming up. They won't be the bottom feeder at this level. They, they may not be a playoff team, but they will be better. Sacramento did better than any of us thought that they would. And they finished a game behind the Pelicans in the standings, basically. So, you know, they're, the West isn't going to get easier next year. Golden State will be better again next year. You could, you know, a healthy Jamal Murray will be back next year. All those things are there. So the Pelicans have to make the jump. They have to. It's not, it's not even a choice uh, because I don't think you can go into a fourth year of having three straight losing seasons with Zion and then try to say, well, now we're going to turn it on because I think the league starts to turn against you then. The league starts to start, be parasitic. And then it really becomes, we're going to start going after and chipping at the pieces of your roster that we want. And, and then we're in a cycle that we've seen before. <laughs> That's where I'm like, do they just go out and swing on the big move? Uh, How big know. though? I don't think it happened there. I don't think that guy is out there. Like that guy who makes it all good. Like, I don't think you can get, you're not getting Bradley Beal. Washington's not giving up Bradley Beal. No. So who's, who are you getting? That's my, when everybody says, let's go for the big move. My question is, who's that guy that you think you're going to get? Because I don't think Pascal Siakam is available. I don't think Fred Van Vliet is available. I don't think Kyle Lowry solves your problem next year because Kyle Lowry's on the back end of his career. Who knows what he has left in the tank? And I certainly would wonder about Kyle Lowry deciding to come to New Orleans, a team that's in the middle of a rebuild when you were just competing for a championship. And if you're going to rebuild, why not stay in Toronto where you're a god? Exactly. And I've seen some names like – monitoring the Boston Celtics situation, what they have, uh, you know, people are like Jalen Brown, but uh, I think if, you know, if you're Boston, you might not want to part with uh, Jalen Brown because who are you left with? Uh, you're left with the roster that you have right now. Uh, yeah, and if, then, if but, Boston's moving off anybody, it'll be Kimball Walker. Or Martin yeah. And Martin. they're not giving up on Tatum and Brown. So you kind of look at that. Uh, I've seen CJ McCollum because the Portland Trailblazers situation is one to look out for, uh, but does C.J. McCollum solve the issues that you have currently? I don't think he solves. Yeah, no, I don't think he solves uh, them, especially when we talk so much about the point of attack uh, defense and we talk so much about the defense from the backcourt. Um, I would love to have another playmaker, of course. C.J. McCollum's amazing. He's, he's a pick-and-roll guy, too, and the Packers are not heavy pick-and-roll. So, I mean, he, he could provide some things. But, yeah, I mean, those are kind of sort of the big names and big moves that you could go out there and make. You know, you mentioned some Raptors players. Like, I think people are high on OG Ananobi right now. Um, and I wonder if you can get him a little bit early um, into his progression because he's starting to show that he can be a special player in the league. Uh, so, you know, how early can you get in on that? And who are you willing to part with to make that happen? Um, so, interesting names to kind of look out for. But is that the big swing that you want to take? Uh, and you got to look at over the course of a season. So going to next season, you don't make the big move, whatever. But you don't know who's going to be available uh, at a certain time to where what if you're succeeding as a team, you know, or if you want to get a little bit better and, and, and succeed even more to where a guy that you valued high in the offseason becomes a little bit uh, less of like, less value as the season goes on and you can offer a couple like a few second rounders and a player and then you can acquire that player what so if, let me ask you this what if john wall were available the pelican and they wanted to work a pelican sign and trade for Lonzo ball oh wow i this is funny because i've had we've had a listener uh darren 
who has always been on the John Wall to the Pelicans uh, train. And it was in the offseason with the with the deal for Russell Westbrook. He was like, what if the Pel- why didn't the Pelicans like make a move for like a John Wall? Uh, and John Wall kind of showed he was about what 80, 85 percent of what John Wall uh, was before all the injuries, which is a good sign uh, for John Wall. Uh, and it was like that. That's an interesting move because he's aggressive. Uh, we talk about a guard that can, very aggressive, a, a guard that gets into the paint, but also a playmaker. I mean, the passes that he makes, uh, incredible. Um, so John Wall's interesting. If you want to go in on a sign and trade with John Wall, um, it would be well, interesting. maybe they move him for Bledsoe. If you give up enough, let's say if you could get off of Bledsoe. And you had to give in a number pick, a number one pick, uh, you know, one of the Lakers picks or the Milwaukee pick, and you had to give one or two of those up to get a John Wall and have him play. And you, and you all of a sudden now Lonzo is more affordable, I guess, you know, you, you because he's a restricted free agent. And you figure this out, and your backcourt is a six four John Wall who is has been an elite defender in this league at times, and you have a six five six six Lonzo Ball on the other side. 6'8", Brandon Ingram, 6'7", Zion Williamson, and the 6'10", Stephen Adams. That, that's, that's a lot of length there. Well, it's funny. I think we've mentioned the name before. Uh, you know, John Wall, definitely interesting. Uh, I mean, I'm just, yeah, it's pure yeah, speculation. But, you know, throw out a name that I think we've mentioned before, like Terry Rozier. I don't yeah. know where Charlotte is at on Terry Rozier. I think they um, love him. I mean, you know, you saw, you saw him get a career high against the Pelicans. So, <laughs> so if there's a package there – to acquire a Terry Rozier, that's another player that I think could be better for the Pelicans than I think what we saw in, in Eric Bledsoe. Um, so it, th- there's some interesting names. Uh, Malcolm Brogdon why, is one that people mention. Brogdon, yes, another one. And I love Malcolm Brogdon, of, of course. Like, I think he's extremely smart. You talk about basketball IQ. He, he provides the shooting that you want. Um, so Good really, size. yeah, he kind of fits what, the Pelicans would need um, and Indiana in that entire situation, it feels like they're going to be sellers there in the off season to where we kind of need to fix this entire situation. And for a player like Malcolm Brogdon to be available, I think is someone that the Pelicans, you know what I would, I'm, I'm camp Brogdon uh, as, as I think more and more about it in terms of like a guard. Uh, I'm, I think he fits the timeline a little bit better of what the Pelicans are right now. He's played in important games. Yeah. So I, I would be Camp Brogdon. Um, so that's where I would lean towards. Uh, but, yeah, uh, it's going to be interesting to see. I'm so excited. I know people were like, man, I'm so happy the season is over. Uh, no more stress. But I know for me, like a week from now, I'm going to be like, I wish the Pelicans were on, man. Like, yeah. I, I, Start I, investing in your draft coverage. Start thinking about players. and that's- <laughs> <laughs> I'm still excited about this team. Oh, me too. Me too. Lewis, I really appreciate your time, man. You gave me plenty of time, more than I thought you would. Um, and I really appreciate this. I hope you enjoyed your experience because I, I would love to have you back again. No, it was amazing. I always listen to the podcast. It ended up in my top five podcasts uh, of 2020 when I did my Spotify Rewind. Uh, Hard in the Payment was in the top five. So uh, it, it's been it's been an honor. And thank you so much. Man, I appreciate it. Tell the folks one more time how they can follow you on uh, social media. At Louis Prejean, L-O-U-I-S-P-R-E-J-E-A-N. I just tweet about the Pelicans. That's all I do. That's so, all he does. And this is your last week at uh, 
at uh, what was three seven the game? Is it? Not- yeah. Last week I won a three seven the game. Uh, it's been it's been amazing, honestly. Uh, so Delta Media Ray, uh, the opportunity to just take a chance on someone that's still in school and let them yell about the Pelicans uh, on, on the air. Amazing. It's something that I always wanted to, uh, you know, I always want my passion and love for sports to come across because, you know, along the way you start to find people that care about the things that you care about, or even if they don't care about the things you find what they're passionate about as well. And then you can start to have a great conversation and just share the things that you love. So, you know, me being able to express the things that I love uh, to an audience it is always amazing because the response that you get in the conversations and relationships that you build along the way are born out of just love and born out of things that yeah, you care about. So I, I, it's been, it's been great. Yeah. I don't, I don't ever take it for granted when people give you the time to listen to what you have to say about anything. Like I, th- that is always humbling that somebody says, I'm going to set aside an hour, two hours of my day and just listen to what you have to say about something that that's, that's an incredible privilege. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing. So uh, thank you for actually giving me the time to uh, talk about the Pelicans <laughs> on the podcast and share a little bit of my journey uh, yes. because, you know, it, I, I always like to talk about it and reflect. It, it just makes me emotional sometimes. Like I'm like, wow, I, I still have a long way to go, but always amazing to share stories back and forth. And I'm sure we're going to have to get caught up on our Chuck E. Cheese stories as well. Absolutely. I I got a lot of them to break down, but I I really appreciate this. This was a blast and we'll do it again very, very soon. Um, And, and dude, just all the best of luck to you on the next thing that you do. And you know, you have plenty of supporters back here who have your back all the ways. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Um, For Louis Prejean, I am David Grubb. You know how to get at me at DM Grubb on Instagram and Twitter. And at the website hitpwithdg.com. Until the next time, this has been Barnabas.